The House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Welcome back to the House of Mystery on KKNW, 1150 AM, Seattle, Alternative Talk Radio, and you are in the House of Mystery alone today because uh, my cohort is on assignment, Kev Thompson, so it's just me, Al Warren, but we'll still have a good time. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> continuing along, of course, we're, we're doing uh, more true crime this month. And uh, joining us is, uh, he's new to the show, and uh, he's got an interesting series of novellas coming out, and the first one is out now, and it's called The, the L- Mulatto Ripper, and it's the Miss, Cite- Miss Clyte Cases, book one. And um, I'll get all corrected on that as we talk. So <laughs> welcome to the show, James Jeffrey Paul. Thank you, Alan, and uh, I appreciate your inviting me on your show. Oh, it's, it's, it's my pleasure. It's always good to have uh, uh, new talent come in and uh, talk about what they're doing. And uh, Lee Muller in- introduced us, and of course I've known him, and uh, he's usually a good, pretty good uh, pick of uh, talent, especially in uh, crime and murder. <laughs> I, I, I'd like to just say a uh, word of compliment towards him, if I may. I've worked with many editors and proofreaders in my sporadic writing career. It's only recently that I've been able to pursue it full-time. I must say, though, Lee is absolutely the finest editor I've ever worked with, bar none. If there's something missing in the story that you completely did not think of, he'll notice it. If he can if you're confused about how to proceed, he will, as he did once when we were editing uh, one of the later books in the series, says, Well, why don't you um just um why don't we just discard discard this scene and you write a new one? And I did and he says, no, it still doesn't work. How about we discard half this new scene and take back half of the old scene and blend them together? And by gosh, it flowed smoother than, I don't know, Jim Bean from a decanter or something. <laughs> <laughs> but but that's great. That's great. You know, a lot of times people that... Uh, uh, that are not writers or not in the business don't realize how important the connection can be between uh, uh, co-writers or publishers and editors and 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 how it can actually make a difference when it's a real good team and people play off of each other. It's it's it's, yes. it's very important. And, yes, and the sad thing is a lot of people are too egotistical to even want advice, but which is absolutely suicidal because now editors aren't flawless. I mean, editors, editors can, I mean, sometimes I may suggest, I think a couple once or twice Lee's made a suggestion that I thought about it and said, no, I really don't like that. And he's, you know, big enough to say, well, that's okay. But we, we, we have a totally, uh, 
relationship built on mutual respect and mutual cooperation. And that's just, that's absolutely fantastic for a writer. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, you know, because no matter who I'm working with when I'm writing and, and doing things, it's... Um, it's a two-way street or three-way street. You, you you pick up off of each other and you learn from each other in the experience. It's the creation that, that's important. So, um, yeah, yeah, leave the ego at the door. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. So, 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 James, um, let's start about you. What, what first of all, uh, got you into writing and uh, writing this type of uh, series of books? Well, I have been interested in writing since, and loved reading <clears throat> since I was a child. And really, um, you know, Ayn Rand was a very popular best-selling novelist, and she and everyone, some people take every statement she made as if it were gospel. However, she once made the most idiotic statement I've ever heard in my life. Writers are made, not born. Which is, I can tell you from personal experience, it's utter nonsense. The urge to write, the interest in the mechanics of writing, it shows itself at a very early age. And it has nothing to do with your willing it. It's just... It's just part of how you're wired, I think. The question is, will you nurture the gift and keep at it and try to make something of it? Yeah. Oh, for sure. Sure. Now, so the Mulatto Ripper, What what is this uh, series about? Um, kind of what's, what's the idea behind it? Well, um, I've always been fascinated by crimes that are virtually unknown, that you just come across vague references to in newspaper articles or in, um, say, uh, just little, uh, uh, say, just a sentence or two in some ancient uh, encyclopedia of crime. And... Um, I uh, I can tell you exactly when I first heard of this case. I, w I, I was very fascinated once by the still unsolved case of the Axeman of New Orleans. And uh, who was Huey Long, by the way? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, um, and... Um, it made a mention that in one of the New Orleans, I think it was in the New Orleans Times, Picky Hewn, I was looking up an article, and it said, several years ago in Atlanta, a man killed a number of Negro women by slashing their throats and then stole their shoes. And I just thought, huh? And then... Uh, Several years later, uh, uh, full confession, uh, Michael Newton, the crime historian, whom I'm sure you know, oh, yeah. is, a, uh, is a friend of mine on Facebook, and 
because I learned of the second book in my series from an entry in one of his numerous crime encyclopedias, I'm dedicating book number two to him. But when I was looking through one of his crime encyclopedias, I learned about the Atlanta Ripper, and I learned that now no one knows, now with most, as with most unsolved serial killers, no one really seems to know exactly how many victims he claimed. But between 1911 and 1912, somewhere between probably 15 or 16 and 20, the figures vary. Um, women were uh, killed. They were um, had their throats cut, and were um, some and sometimes had their genitals mutilated as well uh, by an unknown assailant. And uh, he he was called the Atlanta Ripper. And at first there was news about him in the local Atlanta press and but he never but to show you that sometimes economics trumps humanity he really started getting lots of publicity when um, black serving women who worked in the uh, uh, wealthier houses owned by whites on the, quote, nicer side of town were so afraid, were too, were so afraid to go home lest they encounter the Ripper that they that they either were asked to just stay or they'd uh, beg their uh, male employers to drive, the, to take them home. And suddenly it became a tremendous financial pain in the neck for uh, the portion of m the more affluent portion of Atlanta that kept black servants. And so suddenly the river was all over the place and his body count began to rise. And um, as far as I know, now please forgive me, I don't have my novel right with me, nor do I have the only book ever written on the case, but which I highly recommend. It's by a fellow, a Georgian named Jeffrey Wells called The Atlanta Ripper, a nice, very well-researched well short book. And The Ripper was only seen twice. Once as a um, black uh, serving girl was leaving out the back door into the back alley of her um employer's residence, suddenly she saw a very, she described him as a tall, heavy-set black man um, creeping towards her, and um, if memory serves, he'd taken off his shoes, um, and I think he was holding in his hands or something, so she wouldn't hear him, and she, she screamed and ran, you know, banged on the door, ran back inside. And what was most incredible, which really showed you that this, while this character, this 
Ripper didn't want to get caught, he was also just displayed this breathtaking arrogance. And when the um, her employer went outside, the Ripper was still there, standing in the same spot, just sort of staring at him insouciantly. And then the Ripper took off and ran, but so you can see that this was a very careful, very crafty and cunning killer, but at the same time, I mean, think about it. You're committing a murder, you're, you're planning on committing a murder, your victim sees you, screams for employer, her employer runs inside, he comes out, and then the killer's just still standing there like he doesn't have a truck, uh, like he doesn't have a care in the world or something. And I thought, what incredible arrogance. And then what was even worse, um, the Ripper's worst night of slaughter happened in the summer of 1911. One night, a woman named Lena Sharp, who was 40 years old at memory serves, went out, told her daughter, I'm going to the grocery store to get some groceries. But her mom never returned, and her daughter began to grow nervous. And uh, and then she went out looking for her mom, and suddenly she encountered, uh, again, the same description, a tall, heavy-set, well-dressed black man and something, and he, there he was standing in her path, and something about his manner made her very nervous. And again, he had the unparalleled arrogance to say, why are you looking at me like that? I never bother girls like you. And, but then, as she just hurried past him, he pulled out his knife and laughing, stabbed her several times in the back, then ran away. And luckily she survived, but it, as it turned out, her mother was already dead. She'd caught, she'd uh, encountered the Ripper shortly after he killed her mom. And the case, though, many, though, though as in many cases, especially cases that involved black suspects, needless to say, many many innocent black suspects were hauled in and given the third degree. Some were even charged individually with some of the murders. Uh, if, uh, if memory serves, they all either got off or one might have uh, been convicted but then was released on a technicality. But after... After a year or so, it was evident that the Ripper was gone, and he's never been seen since. And so I realized that I'd found this fascinating case, and just those images, this tall black man creeping up on someone in an alley without with his shoes off, and then just standing there when he's discovered, or after he's just killed a woman 
he encounters another woman who he doesn't realize is his victim's daughter and then says, why are you looking at me like that? I never bother women like you. I mean, why didn't he just say, of course I'm the ripper, but I never choose girls like you for my victims. It was just, now this fellow was crafty. He didn't want to get caught, but his arrogance just, I keep thinking about it. Every time I think about it, it's like a punch to the solar plexus. It just takes my breath. (laughs) Yeah. How, How much do you think is arrogance and how much is the time? You know, we're looking at 1911. Atlanta had maybe 150,000 people, but segregation was big. Uh, Did this really cause a concern amongst white women and white areas? Because they they were still trying to keep black black communities separate from them. They didn't want black owners owning in their community. And it was just several years since the Atlanta riots of 1906. Right. So, um, go ahead. So, I was just wondering how much maybe he felt empowered by that, in a sense, because his his victims were all what were they in their twenties, and there were black females. Um, well, it, actually, the reason the reason the book is called the Mulatto Ripper. It's what my fictional detective, it's the nickname my fictional detective gives him, because most, most, though not all, of of the Ripper's of definite victims were of mixed race. Uh, in fact, uh, one white newspaper noted that, uh, uh, what was the phrase, that the women were of mixed race, but he killed no out-and-out colored women, as if that somehow mattered. So I, but the apparently the killer himself was very dark-skinned, and he, and just my armchair psychoanalysis, the fact that he worked at night uh, sometimes and never during the day and that he could at least afford a nice fancy suit made me think he must have been at least, he must have had a job in the black community, and he must have been at least prosperous enough that he could afford to splurge a little on what he wore. So uh, I I don't think it was a case of, um, I don't know, Really, all I know is that serial killers. Uh, uh, now, this is may just this may just be one of the uh, uh, old saws that are tossed about, and that, that you hear some FBI um, analysts say on TV, and then of course. It becomes accepted wisdom. And then, of course, you hear another, uh, in a few weeks another FBI analyst come on TV. Oh, uh, I've heard a lot about that, but that's under nonsense. Serial killers really do be. And then uh, FBI agent number three comes on. Absurd. Serial killers always follow the C pattern. No, no, no. And then says agent number four. It's 
a mixture of A and C or B and A, but never A and C. I mean, I, I, I just don't think much of, I, I don't want to sound like Donald Trump, but I'm beginning to doubt a lot of expert opinion that I hear on TV a lot. Well, I think, I think you have to take it with um, generalizations. You know, they, um, they have uh, general ideas, you know, about, serial killers you know and and they they come up with thoughts and action patterns and and um quite often they can be right but it's not necessarily the way it is and certainly not with every serial killer so you you just kind of have to take that as information that could help yes what what i will say is i do believe that most serial killers pick the gender and race and age group uh, usually. Now, some, some are much more indiscriminate, but I think in general, serial killers pick on a, a victim group that they're sexually attracted to if they were not if they never felt an urge to kill they would be asking women like that out on dates not trying to murder them so i just think this fellow probably was attracted to light-skinned black women if there was any racism involved at all it might have been based on the fact that he apparently, as people described him, was a dark-skinned black person, and that perhaps secretly he considered uh, black people of mixed race inferior, even though he found them attractive. So maybe picking on them allowed him to pick on someone he felt easily superior to right. that's my own possible insight yeah yeah and uh so now this this story not not real popular in the nowadays like this is the first kind of i've heard of this story and found out about it um now it, it lasted just over a year what made you actually decide to write a series of books dealing with this? Or are you going to different um, other crimes with your main character? Oh, no. Oh, no. The crime is uh, solved at the end of this book. But, but, the, my books hop around in time from, from, say, 1911, my female private detective is just starting to work for the detective agency she works for. She is 21 years old. And um, this is one of her first big cases, so it's a very exciting moment to her, especially when, you know, in my novel, she's there that night uh, prowling about when the ripper creeps up on tiptoes to the survey girl as she's leaving the um, house 
and she calls for help, and then, you know, it's she who helps give chase to him, so she never forgets the fact that, you know, she once saw him face to face. Now, a few of my novels skip about in time very widely, which is another... My series is a very unorthodox series, and like I said, in that it has such a wide range of time and many different settings across the country and many different types of crimes and many different uh, situations. Uh, but um, in this book, it begins in 1961, 50 years after the crimes began. Miss Clyde's now an old lady in her early 70s, and she returns to Atlanta to work on some business and uh, handle a little case. And, of course, she can't help remembering all that's happened and can't believe it was 50 years ago. But then she gets a call from a very old man who says he's the Ripper, and he tells her things that only the Ripper could possibly have known, and things about, and talks about meeting her that night, and he wants to meet her for lunch the following day, and then he wants to take her on a walk around his old stomping grounds. And so, in a way, it takes her a half a century to solve the case, but the Ripper has to turn himself in to her. Now, it's not quite as, it doesn't unfold as simply as all that. There are some very interesting twists all throughout the book that I won't spoil it for you, but a lot of the book uh, is either the two of them talking about the past and why it happened and whenever they reach a spot that has meaning to both of them a murder scene or the ripper shows where he worked or um a church where a lot of sermons about the murders were preached they'll stop and then sometimes it'll just fade all the way into flashback 50 years ago and, you know, and I thought that that was really a very original way of doing it. And you think, well, if the killer turns himself in uh, or reveals his identity 50 years later, I mean, well, what's the point? Well, the point is, and like I said, one, there's some very unexpected twists and turns in the present-day plot. And two, it's sort of a neat way that the two of them revisit the old spots where all of this stuff happened and remember things that only they could remember. And we get to see a lot of flashbacks to uh, the main story from 1911. Yeah. What what can you tell us about your your primary character? 
and um, how she came about and kind of some aspects toward her. Well, I, I'm thankful that so few people thus far at least have said, well, how can you be so politically incorrect and assume that you, uh, white male, know how to, what a black woman would think. But really, that's just how she came to me. I, 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 it wasn't, I didn't consciously will it that way. I didn't think, I do like to write about characters who are very different from myself and who've had very different experiences than myself because I like to stretch my imagination. But somehow she just came to me that way. I don't recall the exact moment, but I thought, now, there have been some, um, and I looked it up, there are some contemporary noir stories and novels about uh, black female detectives, especially, it seems, about black female cops. And, you know, occasionally you hear about a black female detective, but really... Private detectives or detectives working for agencies, um, at least in Europe and North America, I don't know. They seem to be exclusively, where you're talking about female, they're exclusively the province of white or sometimes Asian women. There is that series set in Africa about the, the ladies book club did what is it called those set of books set in africa do you recall no no i'm not i'm (laughs) not on but but the fact that this was such an original premise and that as i'm planning it i have contracts for the first seven books novellas in my series and I just finished the first draft of number six, but I'm planning ten and all. And the story begins, the first story, this one, begins in 1911. The last one begins in 1985, when she's 95, and still spry and in very good mental and physical health, but mostly retired now, except for people constantly coming to her and nagging her and asking her for advice. Um, you, you think about it. You take a black woman in a profession that black women are seldom portrayed in, and you have it span almost the entire 20th century. You follow her across many decades of her life all over the country, taking on all sorts of crimes and all sorts of locales. For instance, um, number two in my book, uh, The Inquisition for Blood, which I dedicated to Michael Newton, as I said, because I learned of the case involved through one of his uh, entry on his crime encyclopedias, is based on a series of... um, 
voodoo-inspired axe murders of entire families, most of whom were um, of mixed race or had mixed race members, the, you know, the color conflict again. And um, the reason the title comes from the fact that on the door of one of the houses where the entire family had been butchered, someone wrote a quote from Psalm... Oh, Psalm 8 or Psalm 9. When he maketh inquisition for blood, he forgetteth them not. He remembereth the cry of the humble. So that's where the title, The Inquisition for Blood, comes in. Now, some people were arrested, and a few even charged with some of those crimes, but basically they're listed as unsolved. Well, in fact, the entire sect was wiped out. It was Miss well, Miss Clyde's early triumphs. I mean, thanks to her, she pretty much wipes the entire group out. I mean, she doesn't just shoot them dead in their tracks. She uses she uses funny magic and reverse psychology and just pretty much decimates them. I must admit. That was a tremendously fun book to write because I wanted to show how intelligent and how much of a creative thinker she was and how good a psychologist she was and how she could use that to just, you know, without firing a shot or raising a knife, just demolish her enemies. Wow. How much? How much time does it take for you to work with your character, create your character, and where do you draw from? Um, I well, I as I've been working on my um, stories, I've realized um, Lee Miller kept asking me well, what is the basic art in the series? And at first I thought, art in the series? Well, it's just a uh, life-to-death structure. But then suddenly it occurred to me, and again, I applaud Lee for asking me a question to which I already knew the answer, but I didn't realize I knew the answer. Does does that make any sense? He, He made me really think about something that I hadn't really thought about, but it's very important. In the first two books, she's young and clever and uh, really, it really shows what a great detective she is. In number three, um, Arranging a Lynching, which is set in rural Rocky Mountain, North Carolina in the early 1920s, Miss Flighty and her uh, agency are trying to stop an epidemic of lynchings that's broken out in the area. So it started out as whites lynching blacks, but now, as sometimes happened in the South, it's uh, now some blacks are lynching whites. And 
without going into too much detail, again, I don't want to do any spoilers, Miss Clyde is a very modern detective in that, you know, modern detectives for about the past century, um, some people describe them as sort of, they're almost semi-criminals themselves, not that they're criminals, but that they're willing to really, really stretch the moral line or hop over it in order to get something done. In this story, Miss Clyde shows that she's willing to do that, and it causes her a horrible personal tragedy. And again, and in this one we see that she's not infallible, that in fact, Sometimes even someone as gifted as her can screw things up horribly all because she was willing to cross a moral line because she thought it was the only way to end this bloodshed. But the question is, how far can you, the, the theme of that in book number three is, how far can you go to use evil to combat evil? Sometimes it seems you have to, but you can only go so very far before you become the person you're fighting against. You know what I mean? Uh, right. Sort of like, like Nietzsche's saying about uh, he who, uh, he who, uh, he who, was it he who studies monsters should see to it that in the case of doing so, he does not himself become a monster, and when you look into the abyss, the abyss looks back into you. It, that that was an exact quote, but um, you, you know the saying, I'm sure. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Can I ask, who are your biggest influences in writing? Um, my two favorite novelists, uh, well, my several favorite novelists, are the books that have made the really biggest impact on me are what I call the the behemoths, the the ones that seem to cover so much that they may deal with a story that covers a long span of time and many events, or it may discover a single day. But I think of Moby Dick especially, because Moby Dick is so mystical, and so it seems to deal with everything, you know, with faith, with doubt, with revenge, with forgiveness, with... um, mysticism, and to some extent, it's simply a very circumstantially accurate account of life on a whale ship. It, it, you see what I mean? It seems to be so many things at once. And, uh, and James Joyce's Ulysses, which covers just 
parts of two days is the same way. It's a, well, I mean, I grant, now granted, it's not the kind of book, I've read it more than once, but it's not the kind of book you can just pull up off the shelf and just say, ah, I think I'll read a little bit of Ulysses. No, you have to, you definitely have to lock your brain into a Ulysses receptive frame of mind to reread it and you don't always feel like that. But still, it deals with the very trivial events, hundreds of trivial events in the lives of ordinary people in the course of two days, but it seems to deal with the whole world and all of human experience and all different fields of human knowledge. And, or or like... Um, or Crime and Punishment and The Brothers Karamazov by Dostoevsky. Again, those books, on the one level, you could say they're just cheap crime thrillers, but they're really about the most important things in the world. You know, what is the human soul? Uh, should, is, can doubt be, can fate be stronger than doubt? What is redemption? And why do some people not want to be redeemed? Uh, I, I like, uh, my favorite novels are, like I said, I call them the behemoths because they just seem to incorporate all of human existence and just about everything you could think of in them. So, um, oh, sorry, I was just going to say, so if people want to get a hold of you and they want to, uh, talk to you about ideas or maybe uh, um, give you some information. How's the best way they can do that? They can uh, contact me <clears throat> via James Jeffrey Paul author, my author page on Facebook, or um, they can contact me on Twitter, at which is at James Jeff, J-E-F-F, -F, Paul, or they can just uh, write me at J-F-P-L, J is in James, F is in Frank, P is in Peter, L is in Larry, at AOL.com. But I really do hope many people will start reading this first book and spread the word, because as I said, uh, there are some um, very interesting, uh, very interesting books coming up. Um, oh, um, may interest you to know that in book four, Buffet Flat Blues, which is set in the gay lesbian night world of Jazz A. Charlem, uh, Albert Fish and another serial killer, Peter Kudzanowski, are supporting characters. And um, in book number five, The World's Children, which is set in uh, north-central Texas in the mid-30s, Miss uh, Clyde encounters and works with, uh, now, hold your chest, don't hold, don't, well, hold your chest so you won't have to grasp it when you finish hearing what I'm about to say. H.P. Lovecraft. Robert E. Howard and the gospel singer and preacher Blind Willie Johnson 
are all important supporting characters in that book. Wow. How are these being released? And like um, the first one's out now. What? How? What's the cycle of how they're going to be put out? Well, Lee and I have finished pretty much editing books two, three, and four already. So um, Lee seems to think it won't take too long. We'd like to bring them out maybe once a month or maybe a little more than a month. And but two, three, and four are practically done, and I'm uh, going to try to finish editing numbers five, six, and seven, and um, get them to Lee as soon as possible so we can get to work with them all. Um, oh, by the way, um, it uh, it amuses me that you live in Seattle. I was in Tacoma early last October to do some research on, uh, have you ever heard of Jake Bird, the uh, Tacoma axe killer? You know, I don't think I do. I do. Uh, he claimed to have committed at least a dozen or more murders across the nation. He was in his mid-40s over a period of a couple of decades from the late twenties to the late forties. And, um, they, he usually killed his victims with an ax, but since he killed his last two victims, uh, a mother, um, Bertha Klute and her daughter in Tacoma in, um, 1947, um, he was called the Tacoma Axe Killer, and he was hanged in Washington in 49. And um, it was so incredible, I uh, went to, um, I believe it was the Tacoma Historical Society, where they had this beautiful, beautiful room with a really tall ceiling, and um, they have a huge collection of... Um, of uh, clips on Jake Bird and lots of documents about him, and um, the uh, they even had showed me a book I had no idea existed about uh, by called Prison Doctor by a prison doctor in Washington at the time, and more than half the book deals with Jake Bird. That really flummoxed me, and um, the house where the Clutes were murdered uh, was less than a mile from there, so they just gave me driving directions, and after I'd done all my research, I drove right to the murder house, which was now boarded up. I don't know what they were going to do with it, maybe tear it down, but that was quite a that was quite a thrill, you know, just an unexpected thrill in just a short period of time, finding so much information. And Jake Bird is in uh, book number seven. He's the principal character. Well, there we go. Now we know. Uh, well, uh, well, uh, I'm afraid, though, that uh, I didn't toss you, I didn't toss Seattle a bone. Uh, I'm sorry, Miss Clyde doesn't meet Ted Bundy or the Green River Killer or uh, anybody else, so Sorry, uh, Seattle strikes out. <laughs> That's all right. Yeah, it's the way it goes sometimes.
Wow. Well, we'll have your uh, book posted on our website as well and information. So if anybody's looking for it, they can go right to the website. One click purchase. Definitely recommend it. Very interesting story. Uh, great writer. Our guest has been James. Thank you. James Jeffrey Paul. And the book is called The Mulatto Ripper. And this is edition one that's out right now. Yeah, so thank you for being uh, on the show. And uh, and don't forget, if you would mention, uh, it is in both, um, Running Man has brought it out in both paperback and Kindle, but for some reason, the two uh, editions are in separate entries. They're not linked together, and so you have to, and so someone just visiting it uh looking it up might click on kindle and think oh it's just on kindle or might go on the paperback and think oh it's just on paperback but i was hoping it was on kindle so uh, if you could uh, put both those links up so that people know it's in, available in both formats you've been listening to the house of mystery radio show to find out more about our guests hosts or shows go to www.houseofmystery.com Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back. <laughs>